Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, Mike Madrid is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, my fellow co-founder at The Lincoln Project, and he also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, it's great to see you. Always good to have you on. Always great to be with you guys, Ron. Thanks for having me. And making his politicology debut is Jimmy Williams. Jimmy is a veteran of the Bush-Quayle re-election campaign, a former Senate staffer, including nearly five years with Senate Democratic Whip Dick Durbin, and a true Washington, D.C. political veteran. He's also a former MSNBC and CNBC political analyst and an opinion journalist who's written for Vox and The Daily Beast. Jimmy, welcome to Politicology. This should be fun. My maiden debut makes me feel very effervescent. I hope you know that. (laughs) (laughs) We are pumped to have you. Thank you. On this week's roundup, McCarthy's picks for the January 6th committee, Pelosi's veto, and more shots fired by Liz Cheney. Billionaires race to the edge of space, begrudging many who are left to deal with more earthly problems. One America News, the explicitly Trumpist cable so-called news network, has plans to launch a Spanish-language MAGA channel. And in our Politicology Plus segment, we'll talk about the recent charges against Trump's former inaugural chairman. To get that segment and more, subscribe to Politicology Plus right now at politicology.com. Let's dive right in. So on Monday, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy shared the names of five Republican House members he'd like Nancy Pelosi to consider for the committee tasked with investigating the January 6th insurrection and attack on the U.S. Capitol. Before we get to who McCarthy chose, I want to go back to what our friend Owen Loftus said about who McCarthy would likely name in, is in, our, in our weekly roundup on July 9th. Owen said if he were advising McCarthy as a Republican, he would say he's got to have a couple of bomb throwers in there. And it turns out that's exactly what McCarthy did. He named to the committee Representative Rodney Davis of Illinois, Kelly Armstrong from North Dakota, Troy Nels from Texas, Jim Banks from Indiana, and last most definitely least Jim Jordan of Ohio. On Wednesday, Pelosi rejected Banks and Jordan, saying in a statement, quote, with respect for the integrity of the investigation and an insistence on the truth and with concern about statements made and actions taken by these members, I must reject the recommendations of Representative Banks and Jordan to the select committee. A few quick things to note, and then I've got several questions for both of you. Jordan and Banks both voted to overturn the 2020 election results, but also Nels did, and Pelosi did not object to him. Uh, Liz Cheney, the former Republican conference chair who Pelosi has already named to the committee, took to the Capitol steps Wednesday afternoon and defended the speaker, criticized McCarthy, and suggested that one of the members could be a material witness to the events leading up to the attack. Let's listen. The attack on this building uh, on January 6th was the worst attack on this Capitol uh, since 1814. It was an attack on our Constitution. Uh, We supported what would have been the very best option, which was a bipartisan independent commission. The minority leader opposed that. He lobbied against it in the Senate, and the Senate blocked it. The American people deserve to know what happened. The people who did this must be held accountable. 
There must be an investigation that is nonpartisan, that is sober, that is serious, that gets to the facts wherever they may lead. Uh, and at every opportunity, the minority leader has attempted to prevent the American people from understanding what happened, to block this investigation. Today, the Speaker objected to two Republican members. She accepted three others. She objected to two, one of whom may well be a material witness to events that led to that day, that led to January 6th. The other, who disqualified himself by his comments in particular over the last 24 hours, demonstrating that he is not taking this seriously. He is not dealing with the facts of this investigation, but rather viewed it as a political platform. This investigation must go forward. The idea that anybody would be playing politics with an attack on the United States Capitol is despicable and is disgraceful. So, Jimmy, I want to start with you here, uh, because shortly after Pelosi's rejection, McCarthy then fired back uh, with a statement of his own announcing he's going to pull the rest of his members from the panel uh, and, you know, blasting her for what he called an egregious abuse of power. Was this the game plan all along? Are you surprised by any of it? Do you think he expected, you know, these guys to be rejected? And and is and is this, you know, another stunt? Well, I mean, politics is a stunt unless you're not <laughs> unless you're actually passing legislation. And the last time I checked, most people are not passing legislation. So, is it was it a stunt? Sure. How do we know? Um, well, we've seen this before. Um, if you recall, just a month ago. Um, Kevin McCarthy, the, the Republican leader, was given the chance to have a committee with equal representation. He said no. Mm-hmm. Well, that, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. but I'm not sorry to say, well, you, so then you expect your parents to give you the same uh, amount of candy. Well, no, you get less candy. And then yeah. when you say no to the less candy, well, then you get no damn candy. Um, and that's how this works in politics, Mr. McCarthy. Um, and so, you know, look, I, you know, I think McCarthy has oddly enough survived as the Republican leader for a very long time, despite um, not being the sharpest um, uh, uh, tool in the toolbox. That being said, his job is to protect his conference. And by doing so, um, pulling the rest of these members off of that committee, he's protecting his conference. He's protecting them because I think Liz Cheney is right. One of those, if not more, are material could be material witnesses to what happened on January 6th, which I think is the most awful assault on America um, since 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's let Kevin McCarthy, listen, Kevin McCarthy now controls his own tiny destiny in this, and, and that's fine. Um, now, let me also just, if I'm going to diss, let's Please. do some dissing. And that is that Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, uh, uh, effectively the most powerful speaker in our lifetime, um, made a mistake. She, uh, uh, she appointed Benny Thompson as the chairman. Benny Thompson did exactly what um, many members of the Republican caucus did um, on January 6th, which is back in 2005, he voted um, uh, to not certify the election, the reelection of George W. Bush. Mm. Um, and so I'm sorry, but I, and I'm a Democrat. Uh, I'm a progressive Democrat. I'm a pro-business progressive Democrat, but I'm also not a fan of hypocrisy and stupidity. And mm-hmm. so here's the deal, Speaker Pelosi. Um, if you want to have any credit, because that's going to be the talking yeah. point from the Republicans, yeah. right? That Benny Thompson, um, who is a feared, feared member of, of, of the of the House of Representatives, feared by all, not just Democrats. Um, if he's going to sit there and have that, that can you imagine so, if, yeah. if McCarthy appoints members? They're going to hammer that home time yeah. and time and time again. It's a bad, it's a bad image. 
So if I'm if I'm Pelosi, I'm going to appoint somebody else. Yeah. And then I'm going to ask if there's any Republican that would like to be a member of this committee, please say so. Mm. Mm. And I would call Kevin McCarthy's bluff. Now, be careful what you ask for, because then you might actually get Jim Jordan. Yeah, I mean, I I like that approach. I mean, that would be that'd be that'd be a baller move for her to do. Um, Well, she's a ballsy chick. So, I mean, yeah. So, so so, so how do you explain? How do you explain? I mean, why why would she? She's not dumb, right? Why would she put this guy as chair in the first place? That seems like a massive mistake, just from a you know from a optics standpoint. Oh, it's a massive vulnerability. I, I think sure it is, but I think that she has within her own caucus again. The, the party leader is supposed to, the House leaders are supposed to protect their caucuses, as we all know. Yeah. And Nancy Pelosi's job um, is to make sure that the Black Caucus, the Congressional Black Caucus, is happy. Um, and there has been a great amount of tension between the Speaker and the Congressional Black Caucus for lots of different reasons. We don't need to go into those today because it's a long public record of that. Um, so, you know, I think she... I would have put Zoe Lofgren in as the chair. Mm. She's a woman. She's from California. She's in a safe seat, et cetera. And I, I would have absolutely put a woman in charge of this committee mm-hmm. um, because swing voters are women, and we know this. Um, and if you want credibility, have a woman and a, and a very blunt person like Zoe Lofgren who, is, who does not bullshit. She just tells it like it is. Um, and, but she didn't. And so Benny Thompson's the chair. I mean, I—, I <laughs> I, I I don't know. I kind of look at these house chairs these days and look at them and go, wow, how long have y'all been around? Mm. Um, but you know what? I'm not an ageist. I'm just a realist. <laughs> and uh, trust me, at 54, I'm not an ageist. <laughs> but, you know, let, let's let's see what the, how this plays. I, I just think that Pelosi, um, I mean, I, I tweeted yesterday, she's dragging Kevin McCarthy around like a dirty blanket. Um, but, you know, Kevin McCarthy can stir up some dirt. Um, and if I, if I were Kevin McCarthy, I'd get out there and say, Benny Thompson, Benny Thompson, Benny Thompson over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's what they'll do. So Mike, uh, you know, Republicans don't want a bipartisan independent investigation of January 6th of any kind. That much is clear. It's been clear since, as Jimmy mentioned, they voted down the independent commission. Um, you know, and, and I think it's also clear that they're going to run with whatever talking points they can. To, as, as to how the committee is illegitimate, out to tear down the Republican Party, or as Jim Jordan has already put it, the third impeachment of Donald Trump. So, you know, w- will that line of attack work when the hearings begin and the entire timeline and violence of January 6th is put on full display and, and, and broadcast in prime time in front of the American people? It will work for a very wide segment of the Republican base, and that's the goal here. They, remember, the Republicans also don't, on top of everything you just said, which is absolutely correct, the Republicans also don't want an honest investigation. They want a partisan circus. So they were never going to be complicit in this. There's just no way. What McCarthy is doing is entirely predictable. He's going to have to make this as partisan as he possibly can. That's the best defense when you basically are standing on the indefensible. And so, you know, last resort here is to make this a, a partisan circus. And that's, again, I, I, this isn't the first time it's happened. It's not the last time it's happened, right? This is just going to be part and parcel of what the Republican conference does in order to defend its members, as Jimmy just said, I think quite accurately. So I think it's really important to, 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 to keep in mind as the, as the tactics play out in the House of who's trying to do what, the idea that this was somehow possibly going to be an honest bipartisan committee that would actually get down to the bottom of what was going on on January the 6th is it's a ruse. That was never going to happen. And I think that Pelosi's actually played it pretty smart to this point. Um, 
let them put the names forward, shoot the names down. You can't have somebody who's potentially guilty and complicit yeah. in this sitting in judgment of what's going to yeah. be happening. Yeah. I mean, that's just not the way the system, American system works. It shouldn't work that way in Congress. So <laughs> let it play out. I mean, look, this is part of the kabuki dance that everybody's going to be doing here. There's nothing that is unpredictable that has happened to this point, and it's going to it's going to be a partisan circus. It's unfortunate. The Democrats have a job to do, and their job is to get as much evidence out as possible. And the Republicans are going to obstruct and try to obfuscate as much as possible. I'm sorry, Mike. Did you just did you just insinuate that Congress is actually a reflection of the American people? Shocking. <laughs> I know. That's the way representative democracy works sometimes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but but what a, what a sad statement. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> okay. What do Democrats need to do then effectively to counter message Republicans, and how can? How can Democrats convince Americans who are in the middle, the middle, I put that in air quotes, uh, that the committee is seeking the truth and isn't succumbing to partisanship? Jimmy? Um, well, you have to start having hearings. And uh, I think uh, I think today, they're, they're are they going to start today? They were supposed to start today. Mm-hmm. I have no they idea. I mean, they have a quorum yeah. So yeah. They, with uh, with Liz Cheney. Um, so let, let the games begin. I, I, Mike said something really interesting and also very, very true, which is – McCarthy at all, they're playing to about 30% of the American people, and that's it. They don't give a damn about the other 70%. The Democrats have the exact opposite problem, which is they do give a damn about the other 70%. Um, and I think that, you know, you have to feed the beast. You've got to feed the animals. And if you don't feed them, so the, the, the Democrats have to feed the far lefties in a, in a, in a, in a here, I mean, a committee that's, that's looking to want to want January 6th. It's definitely something that feeds the animals. The question is, is do the rest of Americans, the other, say, 33%, do they actually give a damn? It's summertime. COVID is over. Oh, wait, maybe it's not. People are going on vacation. People are going to restaurants. They don't give a shit. And the midterms are a long ways away. And the midterms are a very long way away. <laughs> and thank God. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess, you know, how do you break through? And I don't know the answer to that unless you can actually present evidence. I mean, uh, you, you got to have bombshells. Right. You got to have, uh, you know, shrapnel. You got to have, this is war. Yeah. And so I, I think that if they come up with testimony that's damning and actually um, um, damns or indicts politically actual members of the House, you know, Lauren Boebert or whoever the hell, Marjorie Taylor uh, uh, Green, I call her uh, the margarine woman. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, anybody like that, if they actually were involved yeah. or anybody, if it doesn't matter, then that's a bombshell. That's when America goes, whoa, hold up. An actual member of, of Congress facilitated and helped with an insurrection. Then, then, then you have uh, the, 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 everything changes at that point. So if you can't get to that, then all the rest of it's just sort of fluff and kerfuffle. And I don't know that it breaks through because I don't know that anybody's really interested, to be completely honest. Uh, my niece is the biggest bellwether of all things politics. She's 40. She is politically astute. She's a school administrator. She's got a 15-year-old and an 11-year-old. She's, she's married. Her husband's a banker. They make decent money. They, you know, they, they, they are absolutely the upper middle class of this country. If I said to her, hey, Maggie, what do you think about this committee to invest? She'd say, what are you talking about? Mm. That's what she would say. Mm. 
She did tell me that Walmart currently has back-to-school products for sale, and that angered her. Uh, now you see where the American people are? Yep. Right. So yep. they don't give a shit. Yep. And I hate to say that, but they don't. Yeah. So, um, you know, we can – listen, uh, Jim Jordan is, is actually – I cannot believe I'm going to say this. <laughs> Correct. This is, in fact, the third impeachment of the man-boo president. That's exactly what this is. Nothing more, nothing less. But at the same time, the man-boo president, former man-boo president, he did indeed ask for the country to revolt, and they did. So, you know, and, and the impeachment showed that. Um, now, that all being said, none of that matters. He's not, he's not uh, the president of the United States anymore. Um, the question really and truly is, is does he run again? Because the minute he says he's not running, yeah. everything changes. Okay, well, given that, actually, that's a really good segue to this other question I have for you, which is this this column that that uh, Chris Eliza of CNN wrote with the headline, Nancy Pelosi just doomed the already tiny chances of the one six committee actually mattering. and and basically his his point is that uh, it, it's not going to be bipartisan, so it doesn't matter. and and he, first of all, he's wrong on that point because Liz Cheney is going to sit on this commission. So right. by by nature, it will be bipartisan unless you you know unless Liz Cheney doesn't count as a Republican anymore, um, which I suppose a lot of people would make that argument. But I just bring this up because I I think that's I think that's wrong, and I don't think that the committee actually mattering hinges on the presence of, of Jim Jordan. And uh, and and whether any of you know McCarthy's bomb throwers get to sit on it, um, and I and I think it's important that we remember maybe Democrats maybe this is the messaging that they ought to go with here, but like they need to remember Republicans are the defendants here, and and I don't know Mike, what do you think about that? Look, I think that's that's exactly right. I disagreed with Saliza too. I, I think I've disagreed with him since he said John. You know, John Thompson would always be the uh, basketball coach for Georgetown. Chris <laughs> <laughs> is a fellow Hoya, oh so we were there at the same time. So I think uh, I can say that with all due respect. We just you just aged us, uh, Mike. Thanks yeah, a well, lot. Well, aged myself anyway, aged myself <laughs> specifically. So I'll say that. Um, look, I think that that this is all uh, again, as I was saying earlier. I think a lot of this is all very performative, and I think that the fact that we were trying to find some sort of truthiness by making this bipartisan was always a fool's errand. That's just not going to happen. And that is, that is, in my estimation, that is okay. The cards are what the cards are. Play the, play the hand the way the hand lays and don't wish that you had gotten a different set of cards. So, you know, look, this is the, the thing that the Democrats need to do. The objective here is to lay out the strongest case that it can. Jimmy's exactly right. Most Americans are not paying attention but I also happen to believe that impeachment one and impeachment two benefited the Democrats. Why? They helped in a marginal but very important erosion amongst these, these famous – I'll keep saying it till, till the last bit of my hair has gone on my head – the white college-educated suburban Republican voter is not paying attention directly – but the background noise that continues to reinforce this impression negatively of what they believe the party to be is incredibly important. In their heart of hearts, they know what happened here. And as long as that reminder is there, you can continue to remove that wall brick by brick. Everybody in politics, all of us you know, insiders, are always looking for the silver bullet. How is this whole thing going to be dismantled all at once? It never happens that way because the vast majority of Americans are not paying attention and really don't care nearly as much as we do. 
What is important is the steady drumbeat, the refrigerator hum, the drip-by-drip erosion of support amongst the Republican base. That is happening. It continues to happen, and this hearing will continue to erode that, even though it will be largely driven by the Democratic caucus. There's going to be some strong, overwhelming evidence. There's going to be some very powerful visual evidence. We are going to learn more and more and more about what happened here, and it's going to frighten a lot of us to our very core. That does not mean that every American is going to be sitting and watching with bated breath on cable news to watch the hearings day in and day out. But they're not going to need to. It will be background noise that will be legitimate. It will be sufficient. It will be credible evidence, at least the vast majority of it. And it is going to have the intended effect of eroding. Even marginal numbers of support in a shrinking caucus has an exponential impact. Okay. Republicans losing two, three, four percent of their base has a massive impact in the midterms. Now, I'm not suggesting that the midterms are going to fall on the outcome of this these hearings. I don't believe that for a moment. But I do believe, and I, as I have believed for the past two, three, four years, that this tenuous relationship between educated and informed Republicans gets more and more tenuous all the time. And it is evidence in cases like this, where you have Republican leaders arguing things that are that show a cognitive dissonance between reality mm-hmm. and what people know and what people feel. And I think that this is going to be another very significant brick in the wall. Yeah. If, if you, to, to, use, to use another uh, older reference to further cement our age here, <laughs> I think that that makes it even harder for, for the Republican caucus to kind of keep on firm ground. Let's just be clear about whose age, who, who we're aging here, because I, 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 I remain the the uh, the sole millennial of this panel. So yes. we call uh, you we call you the fetus. Ron. Yes, that's right. yes. uh, Mike, the, the refrigerator hum is a really great way to describe. That's actually in in practice. Like, okay, listeners to this podcast care a lot about what happens, and they're following right. the news, which is why they're following this podcast. But but you're right. Most people, I think both of you are right. Most people are not going to be paying attention to the TikTok of this, but the but the constant drumbeat. I love refrigerator noise. That's exactly what it is. Can I follow it's, up on yeah, that? Please first? do. I want to. I want to expound on that. Yeah. From 1992 till present, our friends on the Republican side of the aisle did something remarkably smart, and they got a woman de-elected from the presidency of the United States. Her name is Hillary Clinton. How did the Republican Party do that? By making her the most hated person in the country. Investigation after investigation after investigation, Travelgate. I mean, you name it, they investigated it. I mean, everything the woman did, if she took a shit, they investigated it. Um, and some of that was worthy. I mean, Benghazi, for God's sakes. I mean, my gosh, she twist, testified for 11 hours uh, in in. She didn't do it. Okay, great. Well, the Democrats have finally figured it out, which is if you investigate the hell out of somebody long enough, you make them unelectable. And so I think that if the Democrats continue to do this, and they should, then I think it just makes Donald Trump's elect reelectability impossible. And I think, and and you have to listen. You this is this is not a worldwide wrestling. Never let them up. You got to keep them down, and if you keep if you're on defense, you're on defense. You're never on offense if you're on defense. Yeah. And if Donald Trump is constantly on defense, 
because of his actions, his words, um, or those around him and his supporters, then that means that at some point he's going to look at polls and the polls will show that he is not reelectable. And if that's the case, that changes everything about the Republican Party and about our modern day political system. Because at, at that point, I think, I hope, I pray the Republican Party will have the chance to bounce back and come back in a form mm. that is not filled with a bunch of damn Nazis. Um, now, if Trump runs, all bets are off. Yeah. But you got to keep him down. Yeah. And you got to keep him on defense. Um, and if, if the Democrats keep doing these these hearings, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. uh, and they do them within the Congress as well, um, since you have both chambers, then I think that's a really smart thing to do. Yeah. Um, and if, if, uh, that's all. That's yeah. That's, that's it. Mike's I, I, right. It's I, an erosion. Yeah, it yeah. is an erosion, brick by brick. I think yep. you're totally right. I have one more quick sidebar on the insurrection while we're here on this topic. Um, last night, Tucker Carlson attacked Harry Dunn, who is a black Capitol police officer, and he called him an angry left wing political activist. Let's let's listen to this really quick. So the committee will proceed with one party. What will it look like? We'll think MSNBC with subpoena power. On Tuesday, Pelosi will call a Capitol Police officer called Harry Dunn. Dunn will pretend to speak for the country's law enforcement community. But it turns out Dunn has very little in common with your average cop. Dunn is an angry left-wing political activist whose social media feeds are full of praise, not coincidentally, for Nancy Pelosi. So attorneys representing, Dun by the way, apparently Tucker Carlson also agrees that Liz Cheney is no longer Republican because she doesn't count. But anyway, right. uh, attorneys representing Dunn responded in a statement saying, quote, our client has served 13 years in law enforcement and on January 6, 2021, fought against an insurrectionist violent crowd, no doubt many of them Carlson supporters, to protect the lives of our elected officials, including Vice President Pence. Officer Dunn, who would lay down his life to protect a member of Congress, regardless of being a Republican or Democrat, will testify next Tuesday before the House Select Committee. Frankly, the last thing Carlson wants is for the truth to emerge of what happened that day. End quote. Jimmy... What does deflecting from the insurrection by attacking the political views of a police officer tell us about their strategy for messaging and framing the Capitol attack? I, I think a, a few things. First, uh, the, the the current Republican Party has no morality left in it. Um, and that saddens me on every level as a former Republican, yeah. um, as, as a current Democrat, as an American. I believe in a two-party system. And to see someone like Tucker Carlson attack cops to see Donald Trump call John McCain a loser. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of stuff. And let me be clear. I'm a rebel rouser. I like to say stuff to get people to, to wake up and pay attention, but you don't go after the people that are there to protect you. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't go after American heroes um, because you don't, because they've done it. And you haven't. Um, and so saying stuff like this is just, it's a diversionary tactic. If you set off a bomb over here, you don't see what's happening in front of yourself. Um, and that's smart and that's good um, for Tucker Carlson to do that for his um, for his base and for his um, viewership, if you will. Um, by the way, MSNBC with subpoena power is a brilliant statement. I wish Ooh. I knew who that copywriter was because that's good shit. Right. That is, that is but good. that being said, yeah. I, I, I'm going to take this a step further and I'll end on yeah. this. And that is I tweeted yesterday that if you. Voted to not certify the elections on January 6th. There's, there's absolutely no difference between you and the people who broke out windows and smeared blood on the bu burst, the bus of former presidents 
and vandalized our, our, our Capitol and sat in the president's chair in the United States Senate. You're the same person. There's no difference between you taking that vote and those people taking those um, uh, uh, batons and Trump flags and fire extinguishers and police shields and trying to destroy a, a, a constitution. They're the same people. and They should be treated as such. And that means they have no morality. And if you don't have morality, then I have no place for you in my, in my time because I only have a, a limited time on this earth, thanks to God. Um, so what I do with my time in between birth and death is my time, but I will not spend it with immoral people that think that the Constitution is something that should just be waved away to make a political point. I just don't believe it. Mike, speaking of immorality, one of the people that that officer was protecting that day was Tucker Carlson's son, yeah, who is a Capitol uh, Hill staffer. So, I mean— <laughs> Yeah, I, I look. I'm I past the point where words escape me on some of this stuff. Yeah. Whether it's vaccines, or yeah. whether it's the insurrection, or whether their own livelihoods are imperiled, or their own family and their own sons and daughters. There's look. There's no. There's no defense for a lot of this. It's just some of this is just truly unspeakable. But like I said, the the whole the whole rubric here, the whole frame of what the Republican media ecosystem is going to try to do is to attack the messengers, right? When you don't have a substantive defense for what has happened here, the only recourse you have is to undermine the credibility of the messengers. It's why they won't be complicit, in their words, complicit in being a part of this committee that Nancy Pelosi is pulling together is because they have to attack it. They can't attack it if they've got their own members on it. They're going to have to attack the, the witnesses that come out and speak. They're going to have to undermine the credibility of it. They're going to have opposition researchers looking at all the social media content of not only the officers who were harmed or who will be testifying, but anybody, anybody in that capital that day. All of this is designed to undermine the credibility of the message that is going to be obviously portrayed. And it's all designed to limit and contain that refrigerator hum that we were talking about. They've got to keep their base intact. That is goal number one. And remember, this is a shrinking base of support. Republicans find themselves in a demographic cul-de-sac. They cannot afford to lose anybody. They're not trying to expand, but they cannot limit themselves either. That explains. When you understand that, you start to understand why they tactically are behaving the way that they are. So that's why Tucker Carlson is making the statements that he's making. It's why Kevin McCarthy is making the statements that he is making. It's why the Republican conference will behave in a very sad but predictable manner as we go through this next few months of process. This week, Amazon's billionaire founder, Jeff Bezos, was launched into space briefly aboard the New Shepard spacecraft of his private space company, Blue Origin. Bezos bested the altitude reached by Sir Richard Branson, who experienced zero gravity last week on board the VSS Unity from his private space company, Virgin Galactic. Branson's and Bezos's companies are both a couple years behind Elon Musk's SpaceX, so essentially they're competing for second place in putting humans in space. SpaceX sent astronauts to the International Space Station last year and has plans to send humans to the moon later this decade. There was a day, gentlemen, once upon a time when we were united in awe over human achievement in space, uh, but that day seems to be gone as the reactions have been split into... I think two camps, um, you know, the first being what an achievement for private industry and how exciting for the future of mankind. 
or what a colossal and tasteless waste of money by people who don't pay enough in taxes. Um, you know, Talia Levin wrote for MSNBC, um, quote, the exploration of space has always been juxtaposed against the pressing earthly needs of any country that seeks to launch its citizens into orbit. The United States, even a poor steward of its citizens' needs from the abject failure of its healthcare system to the appalling rates of poverty and food insecurity, unparalleled, unparalleled in development na developed nations, is particularly vulnerable to this criticism. So, I can see personally where where folks are coming from who see you know a sequence of billionaires blasting themselves into space, at least a little bit vain and unnecessary. But you know I'm actually really excited about this and was inspired by this. You know because you know not the least of which private industry going into space means moving goods and people around the planet faster eventually and above the upper atmosphere is only going to get easier and cheaper and, and more accessible over time. So Jimmy, I'm curious about what your, your take on this was, uh, especially coming from the, you know, like the, from the left's perspective here, why, you know, we're seeing so many people having a strong negative reaction and, and, you know, I've got more to say on this, but where do you come down on it? Well, I mean, sorry to disappoint y'all once again from my horrible <laughs> lefty views. Uh, who gives a damn? It's his money. Now, should he have less of his money because he's a billionaire? Sure. I believe in a progressive tax code. But I have some history on this, sadly. Mm. And I'll tell you a very funny anecdote. Um, this is, I think, back in 98 or 99. Again, we're very old, Mike. And um, I was on the Senate floor working for Durbin. And Phil Graham, uh, Senator uh, Phil Graham from Texas, um, the Democrat turned Republican um, and former chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, he offered up an amendment that was just something horrifying. And I thought, well, that's it. I'm going to get back at this bastard. Hmm. So I drafted an amendment that defunded NASA. <laughs> <laughs> and I filed this amendment. <laughs> Durbin comes up to me on the floor and he says, why do we have an amendment to defund NASA? I said, oh, Phil Graham pissed me off. I thought it would be a good idea. <laughs> and he goes, Jimmy, we can't defund NASA. I'm like, why not? He goes, because Barbara Mikulski will kill me. I went, oh, that's a good point. I'll, I'll get rid of the amendment. And he goes, no, he goes, you got to get rid of the amendment. I said, your amendment, you have to ask unanimous consent for it to be, um, you know, taken down. He goes, I have to, you're the senator. <laughs> he goes, we're going to have to talk about this later. I went, whatever, just get up and ask your seat to take your amendment down, whatever, blah. And he goes, okay, fine. And so, I, not because I hated NASA, but because I was pissed off at Phil Graham. And NASA obviously is Texas. Okay. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the yeah. point is, is that, you know, at some point, NASA is because of JFK. Yes. And because we needed to beat the Russians. Um, and so, and, and the country needed it at the time. The country, I think, still does need NASA. The question becomes is what is the, what, what, when the pendulum swings between public and private sectors, uh, what is the most beneficial and what is the most useful? I don't know the answer to that because I don't think there is one easy answer to that. But what I do know is if some idiot billionaire wants to go up in space for five seconds, mm. let him. Who mm. gives a damn? Yes, we yeah. should tax him more so that we can pay for poor people to eat, to have lunch at school. I got it. I totally get it. I'm for it. Tax the hell out of the guy. I am. But here's what, what, here's what offends me in this country is when I hear folks on the left say there should be no billionaires. Yeah. Nothing could be more un-American than that. Yeah. The point of this country is no matter what your circumstances are, you should be able to, it's not the case always, uh, sadly, but you should be able to 
work your way up into whatever you want to do mm. and make as much money as you want to. And the government has the right to tax you as much as they want to, too, mm-hmm. um, to pay for things like your neighbor's kids who can't afford to eat. And so consequently, the idea that there should be no billionaires is totally and just it's it's a it's a ludicrous and bullshit statement. It's 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 an awful, it's un-American, it's 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 wrong. Yeah. But that being said, if you're gonna make that much money and waste it on going up into space because you think you have a tiny pee pee, whatever, <laughs> that's fine. I'm not that's not my problem. Well, all that matters to me is is that you just pay your fair share of taxes. Yeah. And what do we know? Jeff Bezos didn't pay taxes. Yeah. That's ludicrous yeah. too. Yeah. So, that's as un-American as saying that you shouldn't have billionaires. Yeah. More than more than one thing can be true at the same time. That's and I exactly feel like that's right. what yes. Twitter misses a lot of times. Yes, so. That's right. So Mike, I, I have a I have a uh I have a thought I want to float to you. Um and maybe it's a little bit Pollyanna-ish, but um, you know, I just I just started this uh this new series on Apple TV called um For All Mankind. And I watched the first episode last night. And this the premise of this this story is you know, what if the Soviets had won the space race? And in the first episode, there's this scene where these two astronauts are sitting next to each other. And this this whole thing takes place during the height of the violence of the civil rights movement. And one of these astronauts comments to the other and and basically says, uh, you know, if 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 these, you know, the, the police officers who are cracking heads in the street and, you know, if, if all of these people could look up for a minute and sort of realize the smallness of the stuff that we are fighting each other over. And they had something a lot more inspiring to pull us forward. You know, he, he ends up going on to make a joke, but, but the sentiment there was that like, there's uniting power in a shared aspiration as grand as putting people in space and, uh, and pri- and, you know, space travel for everybody. Um, and I wonder what you think about that as as maybe, you know, just the the idea of space travel that is eventually made possible to everybody uh, or is, you know, made affordable to everybody over the long term. If that's a kind of thing that could change the way we're headed right now as a people. And you and I have talked a lot about the next 20 years in America being very, very dark. Yeah. And I, I just, you know, I, I humbly submit that for your dissection. Yeah, look, I don't know that it will be a uniting force in the way that we will have a rally around the flag effect. Well, certainly not these billionaires, right? No, no. But what I will say is this. America, the idea of America requires frontier. Hmm. It has to have an expansive notion of what it is and who we are, or it starts to turn on itself. And I think actually the period between 1970 and probably up until this time is a demonstration of that. It's it's demonstrable, right? It's it's if America can't keep pushing west and go west, young man, and keep expanding, it starts to turn on itself. And our culture doesn't have the anchors that are required to build the institutions necessary for a people and a nation and a state to do anything other than either expand or contract. If we're not growing, if the American idea isn't growing, then it's dying. And to me, that is why space the final frontier, right, is so important <laughs> in this discussion. Roddenberry. Right. So it's so it's so important in this discussion. And you're saying something really profound, right? It's not that we're we're in a race necessarily with another nation or another country. What what this 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 race between the oligarchs is really about is who's going to be able to bring space to the masses. 
And that's so critically important. In many ways, it's like transcontinental railroad, right? We've been in this covered wagon phase of going west. Suddenly, we're going to be driving this golden spike at Promontory Point, and, uh, and, and these iron horses are going to start taking us and goods and people out west and expanding the notion of the idea of America. And I'm not saying that in this in a conquest sort of way. What I'm saying this is in a human sort of way is we need to expand our horizons to exactly to the point. I don't know if it was if I got to the same point that you're at with the same rationale, but we ended up in the same place anyway, right? Is I don't believe it's necessarily going to be a unifying American force. I do believe that this consumerist tendency to get to space will probably not be a purely American phenomenon. Frankly, it will be a global phenomenon. It will be a human endeavor. And I think that we require that as people, as a species, as a human species, and particularly as Americans. We have to have frontier. And from that perspective, I think it's a very positive development. I, too, am excited about it. Not in the way that we saw this in the 60s and 70s. And let's be mindful, the Russians did beat us to space. We beat them to the moon, right? But what we did, there was a, there was a, there was a, there was a, uh, there was I was not there for it. <laughs> Jimmy and I were not there for it. Are you to sure? Watch, to, oh, I'm, Jimmy may have been. <laughs> the, the, land, the landing on the moon, right, to watch that, um, you know, to, to experience what that meant. But there was something prideful about being, uh, you know, and humbling, I think, about being human. But there was also something prideful about being an American who finally uh, saw our country put people on, on the moon. Um, I don't think that we're going to experience that same sort of elation and national pride I think it's much more expansive. It's going to be much more global. But this idea of frontier continues, and I think that that is really, really important for this country at this moment in time and, frankly, for us as a species at this moment in time. I want to discard the poorly constructed point that I started with and and sign up for the one that you just made because I, 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 I think that was much better said. Thank you. All right, Mike, buckle in for this uh, topic. Late last week, the Daily Beast reported that One American News, also known as OAN and a favorite network of Trump and his most fervent sycophants, is set to launch a Spanish-language sister network sometime this fall. According to the Daily Beast sources, the network will host the same far-right conspiracy-peddling content targeted at a conservative Spanish-speaking audience. This comes amid a hard-right turn in other Spanish-speaking media and of course, after Donald Trump actually overperformed with Hispanic voters in 2020. So I'm going to give you the floor for a bit because I want you to unpack first what we saw happen with Hispanic voters in the last election, the disinformation that was targeted at Spanish-speaking voters leading up to the election, and also what we're seeing as Spanish talk radio turns to the far right. Um, you know, what I think this is going to come as a surprise to a lot of our listeners. So why don't you tee it up for us and tell us, give us the the, the background here? Sure, and this is a very significant development um, for a whole host of reasons, and I'll try to unpack some of them. Um, there's a lot happening on this front, which is kind of, I think, um, a sort of validation for me for you know speaking into the wilderness for 30 years to both parties, saying this is what needs to be happening, but also an area of great concern for again both both strategic and tactical reasons. So so here we go. First of all, what we're talking about is is an incursion by the right uh, in American politics into the media ecosystem on Spanish language media. The Spanish speaker in the United States is among the most progressive, reliable Democratic base voter. 
So the fact that this incursion is being made politically is of, of great consequence. I think it's extremely significant. The increase in the vote share for Donald Trump between 2016 and 2020 was quite remarkable, not just because it happened for Republicans, but, ha- but because it happened for a certain type of Republican. And Democrats still, to this moment in time, have not made that adjustment appropriately. They still lack the message matrix that is required to be competitive with this vote, with this voter base. Now, let me, let me say a little bit more about that. They're going to win a majority of Hispanics from now until the foreseeable future. But they've got to win with very wide margins. And the Democratic Party has always treated Hispanic Latino voters the same way they have treated black and African-American voters. They view them as this kind of model minority. And if we just speak to them and address them with an issues matrix as minority voters, we're going to keep getting 75 80% vote share. That is demonstrably false. I've been saying that for decades now, and it's now coming to fruition. It's going to begin cascading. The fact of the matter is the Democratic Party has a message problem. There's a substantive problem. It's not a problem you can out-organize and get away from, okay? And the earlier and the sooner they are able to understand that, they need to have a working-class agenda, a genuine economic, populist economic agenda for people who work with their hands, who do not have college degrees, who are building the infrastructure of this country. And it's not just an infrastructure bill. It's a whole matrix. It's a whole approach to government that needs to be realigned, much more like FDR, as opposed to what we've seen during the past couple of administrations. If we that adjustment is not made, then Republicans will continue to erode brick by brick. Again, this is not going to happen in one fell swoop. It's not going to happen with one silver bullet. It's not going to be 50% of the vote in 2024. It's going to happen at 32%, then 34%, then 36%, then 38%. The, Repu- the Democratic Party will cede its ability to become a national majority party. Now, this begins in Spanish language media, but my area of concern and focus is with the two-thirds of Latino voters that are English dominant or monolingual English speakers. And the fact that the Republican Party has begun in the deepest trenches of the, of the Latino Democratic base is, again, of great consequence. It is not the first salvo, to your point. This began in earnest with a lot of the misinformation campaigns, of which OAN is probably one of the largest purveyors of misinformation. WhatsApp technologies, speaking to uh, particularly the first generation and recently migrated on the mediums in which they use, very smart, very sophisticated, and very effective, to coalesce a multi-generational base, particularly in Miami-Dade, in Florida, amongst the Cuban community. This is a a sign, a very clear red five-alarm sign saying not only is this going to continue to hold that baseline number, it's designed to increase its vote share there. Now, I also want to put this in a little bit of perspective too. This is Miami-Dade we're still talking about. It is still just Florida that we're talking about. An extraordinarily consequential state, we know, electorally, but it's not a massive effort that has been designed nationally, especially with Mexican-Americans in the Southwest. I still believe that the demographics portend quite well for the Democratic Party, due in large parts to the growing share of the Latino electorate in the South and then in the Sun Belt states for the Democratic Party to realign away from being a purely coastal party, East and West Coasts, to also being a Sun Belt party and setting kind of a U-shaped base um, nationally for its electoral fortunes. But that is reliant almost exclusively and entirely 
upon winning a greater share of the Hispanic vote than they won in the 2020 elections. So Hmm. it's a very big attack from the right. I believe the Democrats are not well prepared for it, nor are they even thinking about how to respond to it at this moment in time. There is time to recalculate and and come to a new, a different understanding of the issues matrix that they're going to have to uh, recalibrate in order to win the share of the electorate and become a more national party. But time is also, you know, short with the midterms coming up. They're going to have to do something of great consequence. They're going to have to be thinking about it uh, to a much greater degree than they are. And I'm not at least convinced at this moment in time that they're prepared to make those decisions. Jimmy, now you see why we keep Mike around? Absolutely. Um, Thank God. Yes. <laughs> there's a lot for you to uh, to 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 address there. Um, but a couple of things, uh, you know, a couple of questions that come to mind. First, um, you know, just purely tactically speaking, why do Democrats overemphasize identity and assume that these voters are theirs no matter what? And then do Democrats have what it takes to take on the far right's uh, encroachment into Spanish-speaking media? The, I'll answer the, la- the, okay. the second question first, and the answer is yes, of okay. course. Okay. The question is, will they? Let me go back to the issue of identity. Great. Um, I, everything that Mike said, I can't agree with it more. I just, it's physically impossible for me to agree with it more. I can add to it. Great. Um, and, and that is that not all Latinos are homogenous. Not all Southerners are homogenous. Not all Yankees are homogenous. Not all white people are homogenous and not all black people are homogenous. And Democrats need to stop thinking that all Latinos think alike because they don't. And that has, I'm not even talking about the Cuban divide versus, you know, that that I'm not even going into that. Right. I'm talking about human beings are not supposed to all just do exactly the same thing all the time. Donald Trump won 30% of Latinos that have a college degree. That means they have some sort of, of higher education and intelligence. Mm -hmm. He won 45% of those without, that's a crazy number considering his rhetoric and his actions. Mm-hmm. So apparently build the wall didn't matter. Yeah. Apparently racial comments about shithole third world countries didn't matter. None of nothing mattered to the people that voted for him. They voted for him for a reason. And that was what Mike said, a populist message. They liked it. They won it. And they hear it. Now, Latinos are smart because they also know, well, if you're going to give me citizenship, because I'm here um, uh, uh, for looking for the better the, uh, way of life, and, and, I, and I don't want to be deported, and I don't want my kids to be you know, left uh, you know, here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then I think you have to figure out, okay, well, then who's going to do that? There's a reason why Bar- Barack Obama passed a, uh, an immigration bill in the United States Senate and then the House killed it because they didn't want to give the Democrats, they didn't want to give Obama that win. Would have helped gel the Latino vote into the Democratic Party in a very large way. They couldn't give them that win. I get it. It's politics. Politics with human lives. But hey, what's new about that? So that all being said, I think that you have to take a look at what are the Democrats doing with this identity politics? And I was on CNBC with, on Squawk Box with Joe Kernan and it's, uh, Becky Quick and Aaron Sorkin. And Joe was like, why are you fighting culture wars? Why are you fighting identity wars? 
wars. And I said, well, the last time I checked, um, Joe, I don't think the Democrats tried to ban abortion or gay marriage. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to hear anything about cultural wars or identity politics, because here's the deal. The deal is, is that when you attack people because of the color of their skin or who they sleep with or their sexual orientation or the fact that they have boobs because they're women or because they're trans and they don't want them. Mm-hmm. I'm just speaking very bluntly. Yeah. When you go after someone because of their identity, then that is identity politics at war. When you support someone because of their, their identity, you are not, you shouldn't be playing politics with them. But when you support somebody because of who they are, then that's a good thing. So you're either supporting someone because of their identity or you're not. We have this guy on Twitter, 50 Shades of Way, W-H-E-Y, who continually posts videos of crazy Karens, both male and female, across this country and not all in the South, going up to people saying, go back to your brown country. Mm. I mean, he just posted one just like an hour ago. This is happening over and over and over again. That's identity politics. And so how do the Democrats do that? How do they fix that problem? How do they do what Mike said they need to do? I don't know other than you have to point out the deplorables, and that's deplorable. But you also have to give them a reason to vote for you. Voters don't like to be told um, who to vote for. They like to be asked to vote for you. And if you don't ask them to and give them a reason to, then they're not going to. So Mike's right. Dems better get their shit in a pile because here's the deal. You know, if the Latino if if the Latino vote increases as it should demographically in this country, and it will, then they'll replace they may have already replaced African Americans, Black Americans as the largest single minority voting population in the country. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then that is. and, And last time I checked, people still having babies. Lots yeah. of people are having babies, yeah. right? When you have babies, they grow up to be uh, big girls and big boys, and they vote, hopefully. So here's the deal. The deal is, if you want to appeal to, the, to people, yes, appeal to them because of their identity, but appeal to them because of what they want and need. Ask them what they want and need. If Democrats had a brain in their head, they'd do, be doing massive um, forums across the country. And, um, and uh, uh, think, think, what do you call them? You Talk to people about what they care about. Focus groups. Focus oh, groups. Yeah. Yeah, I, sorry. Sorry. I thought you were going to say pandering. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, whatever. It's, 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 it's politics. Everyone's pandering, for God's sake. Um, but, you know, if I would be doing thousands of focus groups yeah. across the country and say, what do people care about? Yeah. That would be a fabulous investment for the DNC. Yeah. Uh, whether they're doing that or not, I have no idea. Uh, but I can tell you one thing. You continue to poll people. Yeah. Those polls are going to continue to get it wrong Yeah, because people don't trust them. So just go ask them what they think about something. So, Mike, to Jimmy's point about Latinos increasing their share of the population and then having children who are going to grow up to come, become voters, as Republicans continue to make inroads with this demographic, is that going to change their, their political posture around immigration reform? That's a great question. I think the short answer is yes, mm. it probably will. In fact, we saw it change with Donald Trump. Remember, in 2016, the mantra was build a wall, build a wall at all the rallies. You never heard that in 2020, right? Yeah. And the true. reason why is they were, they were seeing in their own research that they could win a greater share of the Hispanic vote. Mm. 
So they stopped using it. Hmm. Now, he, he doubled down on law and order yep. because he was running against African-Americans, right. especially in the Rust Belt states. That's right. 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 But he, but it was a different kind of racist message. It was a different racist message. He was attacking a different group. And frankly, there's a lot of arguments to suggest that he was trying to utilize a, a black-brown split, putting, putting Latinos against African-Americans using that law and order messaging as well. But he stopped using the build a wall chant. That stopped. And it stopped because their research was showing, hey, if we shut our mouths about this stuff, we can actually win a greater share of the Hispanic vote. And they did. So, yes, the short answer is yes. Now, does that mean it will go away in its entirety? No. That ugly racism is still there. A lot of the base is still absolutely compelled by it. But will it moderate it? I think it probably will mitigate it to some point. It already has. The question is, how much upward potential does the Republican Party and even the Trump wing of the Republican Party believe that they have with the Latino and or Hispanic vote? And the answer is, I think there's quite a bit of upside. I don't think it's going to happen immediately, but it's all truly dependent upon whether or not the Democratic Party is able to pivot off of some of the message matrix that they have. And the Democratic Party needs to understand this loud and clear. It's not an organizing problem. Okay, I've been beating Democrats trying to out-organize me for 25, 30 years. That's not the problem. The problem is a policy problem. Mm. You're going to have to start building a working-class agenda for people that do not have college degrees. Yep. The numbers that Jimmy just pointed out are, are shocking. 45% of Hispanics without a college degree voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, this is, these are the people that were supposedly going to be compelled by the, the, the reaction against building a wall and putting kids in cages and, right. and references to you know shithole countries. And people that are shocked by the fact that people needed to pay the rent and were voting for somebody that they felt was going to open up the economy and help them pay the rent, despite the fact that, oh, goodness, the American president is racist. Shocking. Mm-hmm. Like, that was not, was not news to Latinos. <laughs> that was not news right? to anybody. That was not news, folks. Yeah. That was not what was compelling them. Yeah. That's what's important to understand is the frame of reference with which people perceive the world. And they are very, very far away from understanding what this working class segment, the fastest growing segment of the electorate, is seeing, witnessing, experiencing, and feeling. And until they get back to that, we are going to see a fever-pitched battle for this vote, which will moderate arguably both parties as they try to find center ground away from their extremes. That is actually part of the hopeful part of what I think Latinos can offer this country is it's going to have the Democratic Party moderate as it tries to get back to some of this messaging along with the Republican Party, which is going to have to moderate and seems to be uh, even slightly at this point in time as they both try to capture the share of the middle ground in American politics. That is a great place to leave this segment. Now that we're up to speed on uh, at least three of the biggest stories of the week, what are you both watching for going to next week, Mike? I'm watching the variants that uh, continue to evolve. Los Angeles County here in California specifically is going back to mandatory masks mandates for inside businesses. Uh, Our numbers have spiked 2,500 coronavirus infections uh, in the last couple of days, which puts us back to about a February, March timeframe earlier this year. These are frightening numbers. It's moving much more rapidly. Could change the outcome or impacts of the recall that we're facing here in California, recall race mm-hmm. with the governor of California. But most importantly, with that kind of a spread in that populous region, we're probably looking at another uh, uptick, up increase uh, with the coronavirus situation. And we'll see how policymakers handle it. Jimmy, what do you got? 
Um, I'll tell you what I'm not worried about. I'm not worried about inflation. I'm not um, worried about um, the select committee or whatever this thing is, blah, 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 blah. I'm not worried about any of that stuff. What I am worried about is the 2022 elections. That's what I am completely 1,000%. I mean, people put on, you know, they want us to do everything all the time politically, et cetera. My my response is, is, you know, with a four-seat margin in the House and a a barely one, a half a seat Senate and and a, a majority in the Senate, you know, it's all about 2022. And so I look at it and say, okay, who's the most dangerous? Let's assume Donald Trump does not run, which is not a very good assumption because we got it wrong yeah. the last time yeah. we assumed that he wouldn't run, right? Yep. And win. Um, and I look at the major players and I look at the players that that are garnering uh, the most press and the most money. And uh, Nikki Haley, the former governor here in South Carolina, the former ambassador to the United Nations, um, She's the one that I see as being the the, the scariest, if you will, not because she um, believes in the power of her convictions, but because she doesn't have any. Hmm. Um, and that, to me, is what is terrifying because I see Haley as not an opportunist. If you're not, if you're a politician, you're not an opportunist, then you're doing it all wrong, um, and you're not succeeding. But she scares me in the sense that um, she's a woman. She is um, uh, smart. She has. Um, a super PAC and a not-for-profit. Hmm. Um, she has honed in on her not-for-profit on trans kids. She won't tell you it's trans kids. She'll say, we need to save our kids' sports and athletics. That's what she's going to call it. That's what she is calling it. Really, the attack on trans kids. And, you know, I, 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 I look at something like that, and I think that's a powerful message because it scares the living hell out of so many Americans, as we saw with the bathroom bill debates um, uh, a few years ago. Uh, as we're seeing it now. Um, and so, you know, it's not cool to attack gay people, but it is okay to attack trans people mm-hmm. because people don't understand it. That's right. Hell, I don't understand it. But it doesn't matter if I understand it mm-hmm. because they're an ally and I'm an ally of, of theirs um, because everyone deserves basic human dignity and equality. And mm-hmm. no matter what you, you, you know, you're packing. Um, and so I, I see Nikki Haley as the, as the one that scares me the most. I see um, Tom Cotton is the most ambitious and vicious member of the United States Senate. Um, he thinks he can be president. Um, that seems to be a thing from Arkansas that we've seen before, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is, is can he? I don't know, but I'm not going to take any chances. Uh, and then the third person I look at is Josh Hawley, mm-hmm. who everybody, when he was elected, thought, oh, my goodness, a breath of fresh air, young, <laughs> smart, conservative, but not crazy, et cetera. And then he marches across the plaza of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th um, with a defiant fist in the air and led the insurrection in the Senate from a political perspective. Yeah. Um, and I see those three as the people that scare me to death um, and that I have to begin doing to them what we did, what, what happened to Hillary Clinton um, in 1992, which is to make America hate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is pure raw politics. I'm not ashamed of it. Um, because I think they're dangerous for the country. And by the way, if I found a Democrat that was running for president or wanted to be president who I thought was just as dangerous, I would start a super PAC against them too. Therefore, uh, I'm letting you know that I have started three super PACs, never Nikki Haley, never Tom Cotton, and never Josh Hawley, and I'm going to make their lives an utter and miserable hell between now and 2024. I can't wait to watch this. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, I hope they're not your clients. (laughs) No, no way. (laughs) 
Okay, before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet, Jimmy? Uh, you can find me on the Twitters um, at Jimmy's Politics. There is no apostrophe. It's just Jimmy's Politics with a Y. Um, and you can find me on Facebook. But um, my warning would be that if you do um, and you um, practice hashtag Mean Girls uh, stuff, I'm going to be very mean back to you. <laughs> um, and, um, and and if you don't believe me, you just ask any lefty or righty who I've attacked um, and gone after. It's not pretty, and I don't give up. So that's where you can find me on, the, on, the, on there. Mike? I'm on Twitter, at Madrid underscore Mike. Mike is very nice on Twitter. He's also very smart on Twitter. Right. Yes. Yeah, Mike is right. very nice on Twitter. Right. Very to me, yes. Right. <laughs> Thank yes. you to everybody at home and on the go for listening. There are a number of ways you can help support this work and our mission. You can donate, which helps support the huge team and the effort that goes into every Politicology episode on the main feed. Or you can join Politicology Plus and gain access to hours of exclusive content to help you think more like a political strategist and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. If you're not already in our Politicology Plus community, you can unlock today's bonus segment and more at politicology.com slash plus. You can share this episode with your friends, family, or colleagues. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth, and this helps us reach more people. And finally, you can rate five stars in the Apple Podcasts app and leave us a review there, because this helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover the show organically. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.